Zoe, we've just been listening to the piece and it's a really great weave of code and interpersonal communication and radio history. Uh, can you tell us a little about the beginnings of the piece and where you got the idea and so on? Well, actually, it says in it, I found the books when I was in a shop called Rugs to Rhinos on the Harold's Cross Road. And I was just browsing around one day and saw these books there. There were two of them and they're quite large format. They're A3 books and they're pretty hefty and they cost 60 euros each. And I thought, oh, that's quite a lot of money. So I did buy them and I went home. And as soon as I went home, I thought, wow, there's just so much potential in those because they look so beautiful. They're laid out in codes and phrases and they're just really beautiful objects. So I bought them and then I brought them home and immediately started to see possibilities with them um, as, a, as a found text um, and something to borrow from and use and wrap meaning around. Can you tell me a little more about what these code books were originally for before they were used for romance, as happens in the piece? Well, in the early 1900s, wireless telegraphy was in its sort of infancy and Marconi and a number of other operators actually came up with the idea of codes. So instead of sending a whole phrase from somewhere like Ireland or London across to a ship or from London or Ireland over internationally across to New York or something like that, um, businesses would use stock phrases like we're out of stock of this item or the item won't arrive because the ship has sunk. They're quite wordy and they're very difficult to communicate over Morse code. So what they did was they took these stock phrases and there's 500 of them here and they reduce them to five characters so five letters so instead of sending a whole phrase they would send just a five letter code and then the person at the other end could unscramble that and would have the sentence so uh, you know businesses would send them to each other operators would send them to ships so when a ship left port in the UK and was off to New York the people on board wouldn't necessarily know who the stock uh, had been sold to. So mid-Atlantic, you'd have to be told which port to go to. So they would send messages through these codes. Um, so what I saw in them was really how beautifully they were laid out on the page. So you'd have several five-digit codes and they're variations on phrases. So the example that they give in the book is something like E-H-M-I-T and that means owing to the failure of. So in a shipping context, that's owing to the failure of uh, shipment or owing to the failure of payment. Please go to a different port. But when you start to wrap... Um, any context around it. And in this case, it's the context of a couple falling in love and a podcaster thinking about communication. It takes on a whole different meaning. So what I then did was took these codes and the lists verbatim from the page. So the list of phrases, and I tried to map a relationship onto them. So you'd hear a little bit about the relationship and then you'd hear these sets of phrases delivered as dialogue and they take on a whole new set of meanings when they're delivered by two different voices and they're in context of a relationship. Yeah, because I know we heard a really nice kind of uh, coded flirting excerpt where um, yeah. the, the both sides of the couple are using the code to kind of hint and flirt and so on. Uh, what was your thinking about how the codes could be used specifically for the communication between a couple? Well, the narrator in the piece, um, for example, she has an exchange with through these codes with her eventual husband when they first meet and they speak through the codes to each other and they're flirting with each other. So one of them might say, when can we? And the other one would say, how shall we? Now, in a business context, that might mean something like, how shall we get the goods to you? But 
in this case, is dripping with innuendo about their relationship. So the code G-I-U-T-I, for example, would be something like how often. So there's a list of codes, how large, how long, how many, how shall we? It would have been perfectly innocent in a business context, but in this scenario, you know, it's a little bit more fun and playful. Not just in the Marconi code books that you own, but in your own text, because this, I think, began life as a written piece. Um, it's very beautiful how the codes are patterned on the page. And I was just wondering, is that something that you wanted to get into in your own writing or that you admire in other writers, you know, when text is presented in a less conventional way? Absolutely. I, I mean, I really enjoy using found text or old text to tell new stories and, and unconventional structures as well. I, I remember, as many people probably do, the choose your own adventures when you were a kid and you got to turn a page and, and, and choose the ending yourself. And there are so many outcomes to the story. Um, and now there's there's so many writers playing with text. There's a Chilean writer called Alejandro Zambra, whose book Multiple Choice tells personal anecdotes. And then there's a whole lot of multiple choice questions. And because you've heard the anecdote, then the multiple choice questions take on a whole new meaning. Here in Ireland, there's Joanna Walsh, uh, whose book, just very recent book, Miscommunication, is an entire text written with an artificial intelligence. So she trained an AI on the prison letters of Constance Markovich and also Maureen Johnston's interviews with 24 different women in Dublin, many of them writers, um, uh, and it's their conversations. She trained the AI on this and then the AI and her wrote a book together. And I just think that those sort of words taken out of context, restructured, can be really, really beautiful and have a whole different set of meanings. And in the Marconi books, the codes appear in a way as poetry on the page and you can apply your own situations to the phrases. And I think with a lot of couples or friends, you often have this private code between each other and you talk to each other in shorthand. So to me, it kind of made sense that, you know, the couple in this, they flirt, they discuss and eventually they start to argue through these codes. And depending on the tone that they use, it can really change the meaning of the codes, even though on the page they mean something totally different. Yeah, I love the way it kind of refreshed uh, that whole style of communication between two sides of a couple. Um, so you might say that there's traces of Marconi all over this country and maybe in this project as well. And uh, could you say a little about what you, I don't know, if, information you tripped on in relation to Marconi um, that came up as you were preparing this piece? Well, Marconi has a number of Irish connections. His mother was Annie Jameson from the whiskey distilling family um, and she had a huge influence on him. Um, she used to really encourage his experimentation in the attic as a kid and then later on, you know, she really pushed him forward. She helped him get tutors at home and really pushed his intelligence and his curiosity. But his, his first wife, uh, Marconi's first wife, was also Irish. She was Beatrice O'Brien and she was Lord Inchiquin's daughter um, from Dromolan Castle in County Clare. And Marconi was, you know, in his day, people used to follow him round. He had paparazzi after him all the time. He was a bit of a catch and he fell head over heels for Beatrice and she felt more or less the same, but not quite the same. So eventually the marriage did end. But 
those two connections brought him to Ireland many, many times. And in actual fact, he did a lot of work here because we're such an outpost just before you head out across the North Atlantic. It's a great positioning for wireless telegraphy because it allows you to be as near as possible to the USA or to Newfoundland to get messages across. So he set up eight different telegraphic stations here, some for just simple communications and others for um, commercial communications. So in Antrim, in Rosslare, in Clifton, many other places. And in this piece, I mentioned Crookhaven, which was one of those places where he set up a station. There seems to be a couple of angles to the Marconi and Titanic story. The Titanic story has a number of different uh, relationships to Marconi in that he was supposed to be on the Titanic, but he didn't end up going in the end. I think business uh, changed his plans. But one of the most important uh, aspects of uh, the demise of the Titanic was the fact that it never received a communication over uh, over Morse code from a passing ship, the California, and, and therefore the message that there were icebergs in the area never got to the crew. On the other hand, however, if it hadn't been for Marconi's telegraphy and the wireless uh, wireless operators on board, they never would have gotten out the distress signal, which was then picked up by the Carpathia and 700 people or 700 odd people were saved by that message being sent out. So on one hand, miscommunication meant that the Titanic went down, but on the other hand, so many lives were saved because of that. The piece kind of wonders out loud about a sound conundrum like does sound ever die? And I was wondering, uh, could you talk a little bit about how that comes up? It's again, it's a Marconi thread in the piece but obviously it could prompt investigations in a million different directions. Yeah, Marconi not only was interested in global communications and commercialising that, but he was also a little bit obsessed with sound and he had this notion that sound never dies and he didn't really have a way to prove it and and we still don't quite have a way to prove it but the idea with this piece was that the narrator is one of the central themes in it is that the is that the narrator's sister all the way through her life she's heard sounds that other people can't hear so i became interested in electronic voice phenomena sounds that are perhaps in the ether but that not everybody could hear. And science tells us that those sounds are actually there and that if I make a sound, it it disperses in this room and we can't hear it, but maybe the sound carries on and continues and continues and might bounce off something else and come back to another set of ears. So I really wanted to play with that idea that maybe some people can hear things that others can't. And in one way, People might be considered mad if they hear these voices or hear these sounds. But in another way, it's perfectly plausible that people can hear things that others can't. 